Falconera, Falk the Black, the Count of Anjou, was a bad dude. A plunderer, oathbreaker, and murderer. To ensure his position in the politically fractured post-Carolingian Europe of the late 10th and early 11th century, Falk resorted to near-constant warfare directed against his neighbors. Still, violence against other combatants in the heat of battle was one thing. But Folk the Black was even capable of extreme violence against his own family members. In the year 999, Folk was having marital problems. His wife of 15 years, Elizabeth of Vendôme, had still not produced a male heir for him. Perhaps suspecting that it was her husband's contribution, so to speak, that was lacking and desiring to provide the son that society demanded of her, Elizabeth had taken a lover. Unfortunately, her husband discovered this affair and knowing what kind of man he was, Elizabeth was aware that drastic action was needed if she was going to survive. So she took control of one of his citadels, the citadel at Angers. An irate folk besieged the citadel, and during the conflict, Elizabeth fell from the ramparts, only barely surviving the plummet. When he finally got his hands on her, Falk then had his injured wife burned alive for adultery, and in a similar fashion, he also set fiery flames to the citadel. The inferno spread and consumed much of the surrounding city. Thus ended Falk the Black's first marriage, in the smoldering ashes of Angers, with his wife's charred corpse at the center of it. It was a typical response from Falk, who showed mercy to no one and allowed his temper and love of violence to direct the course of his life. However, Falk was also deeply religious. He truly believed in God, and he knew in his heart of hearts that his crimes had the ability to condemn him to eternal suffering in putrid hell. Tormented by visions of his future damnation, Falk resolved to seek an indulgence, forgiveness that would lessen the punishment due for his sins. He schemed and arranged an alliance with his former enemy, King Robert II of France, cementing their new partnership with a marriage between the king and Falk's first cousin, Constance of Arles. And he placed his half-brother, Maurice, in command of the Angevin state. With his county secure, in September of 1003, Falk the Black focused on ensuring the well-being of his immortal soul. He undertook a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He crossed the Alps and traveled by land through Italy. At Bari, he took a ship that delivered him to the Holy Land, at that time a province of the wealthy Fatimid Caliphate. When he returned over a year later in 1005, he felt as though a weight had been lifted off his chest. Falk wrote to the Archbishop of Tours that the experience had quieted the fear of Gehenna he'd felt in his heart, well aware of the vast quantities of Christian blood that had been spilled by his own hand. Doubling down on his attempts to avoid damnation, he committed to the construction of a monastery on the best site of his lands, so that the monks there might pray day and night for the redemption of his soul. His abbey stands to this day known as Belli Locus in Latin, and in French as Beaulieu, meaning beautiful place, and it has given its name to the surrounding commune, beaulieu le loches Soon after his return, in December of 1005, the Count remarried. His new bride was Hildegard of Sundgau. Just a year later, Hildegard gave birth to a boy, Geoffrey. In a haze of bliss, Falk claimed that the ferocity within him had been replaced with sweetness. Unfortunately for those around him, this sweetness soon turned bitter. 
in the spider's web that was French politics of the 11th century, Falk was soon forced to go back to his scheming. In 1007, he traveled to Rome. There, he made an alliance with Pope John IX, who was seeking more direct influence in France. Falk convinced the Pope to place his monastery, Bellilocus, directly under papal authority, undercutting the rights of Archbishop Hugh of Tours. In 1008, though, the Archbishop allied with another of Falk's enemies, Abbot Robert of saint Florent and supported a forged document that the abbot claimed showed many of the lands held by Falk and some of his supporters were rightfully part of Saint-Florent. Things got even worse when King Robert repudiated his second wife, Queen Constance, Falk's cousin and ally, so that he could take up once more with his former wife, Bertha. Constance had given birth to sons, which was apparently all Robert had wanted, and the king could now once again indulge his affection for Bertha. How romantic. Falk considered all of these events to be the machinations of a longtime rival, the Count of the Palace, Hugh of Beauvais. So Falk the Black planned an assassination. He ordered 12 of his men to kill the meddling interloper. Good news, they succeeded in ambushing and murdering Hugh. Bad news, they killed him during a royal hunting party, and the king had personally witnessed the deed. Worse news, they had been identified as Falk's goons. A group of judges found the killers guilty of a capital crime. And what's more, they also found Falk guilty of having harbored the murderers. Falk was pronounced guilty of treason and now risked being excommunicated. Falk swore to the king that he would prove his innocence by oath or if need be, in trial by combat. The king accepted Falk's offer but added two more requirements. Falk would have to repudiate the murderers and bring them to trial. Falk was bound to these men though, he was their lord, and if he did as the king asked, his credibility would be left in tatters. He depended on men like these to fill the ranks of his military force. Without them, he was powerless. If he turned his back on the killers, his other men might abandon him as well. But if he refused to submit to the king, he would be excommunicated, formally charged with treason, and with the king's backing, his enemies would eat him alive. But Falk the Black was nothing if not clever. In 1009, when it seemed either choice of the two available to him would result in doom for the Count of Anjou, he went for option three. He went on pilgrimage again. He would once again leave his half-brother Maurice in charge, then travel south to Rome, where he would once again seek the favor of the Pope, and then on to Jerusalem. At first glance, his decision might seem illogical, but Falk knew that during his absence and upon his return, he would be untouchable. As for the men who had murdered Hugh of Beauvais, far from repudiating them, Falk supposedly rewarded them with riches. And when he arrived in Rome and met the new Pope, Sergius IV, he asked that the Pope absolve him and his men of the crime of premeditated murder. Falk likely knew that King Robert had asked the Pope for a divorce so that he could legally separate from Constance and be with his true love, Bertha. The Pope had refused and upheld the marriage of King Robert and Queen Constance. Remember that Falk had blamed Hugh of Beauvais as responsible for attempting to break up this royal marriage, which had the blessing of the Pope. So Falk's murder of this man had been an attempt to remove this treacherous snake sowing division in the royal house. If anything, the Pope should thank him. And it seems the Pope did indeed grant absolution to Falk. So the Count was able to continue his pilgrimage to Jerusalem, knowing that he had the Bishop of Rome on side. Falk's pilgrimage coincided with a violent turn of events in the East, 
as news came that the ruler by the order of God, Al-Hakim Biamrala, the Mad Caliph of Cairo, had begun to persecute Christians and had even ordered the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. As far as those in France knew, Falk might very well have been martyred. So despite the Count's absence, his enemies hesitated to act against the Angevin state. As to attack the lands of a martyred pilgrim who had been absolved by the Pope, well, that would have been unthinkable. Remarkably, Falk returned from the East in 1101. By then, news of the Caliph's insanity had traveled far and wide, and the Christians of Europe must have thought Falk to be favored by God to have survived this pilgrimage. He returned laden with holy relics, and even a piece of stone he claimed to have secretly broken off the Lord's very tomb. This time, there was no blissful honeymoon period. If anything, Falk's ferocity seems to have been stoked. He spent the next few years terrorizing his former enemies, and making money. The monastery of Belilocus had developed into a bustling town, and Falk granted considerable tax breaks to those who came to populate it. He also began to mint coins with the image of the Holy Sepulchre on them to symbolize the events of his second pilgrimage. He then took the profits from his growing wealth and invested it in fearsome castles, the kind of which still dot the French landscape today. Western Europe was experiencing a boom, and the Count of Anjou benefited from it greatly. Indeed, Falk the Black lived a long life, full of scheming and war-making. By the year 1035, he'd accomplished much. The county of Anjou was one of the most powerful states in Western Europe, possibly the strongest in all of France. His son, Geoffrey Martel, had grown into his own. Falk the Black had experienced a traumatic childhood. His mother had died when the boy was only four years old, his younger brother soon after. He had grown up isolated and separated from his father's second wife and his half-brother, Maurice, who he only became close to after their father's death. And their father's death had come when Falk was only in his teens. By comparison, Falk, despite the violent end to his first marriage, seems to have had a functional partnership with his second wife, Geoffrey's mother, Hildegard, and he had taken care to include his son in the family business from a young age, preparing Geoffrey well for the task at hand, perhaps with memories of the hard lessons he'd had to learn as a young count on his own. But Falk had lived a violent life, and as his bones grew brittle and his youthful vigor faded, he began once again to think of the rotting hell that awaited him in the beyond. In 1035, he resolved to undertake a third pilgrimage. He once again traveled to Rome, then to Constantinople. The Roman Empire was under the rule of Zoe the Macedonian Empress and Mikhail V, the lover she'd raised to the role of emperor after murdering her first husband, Romanos III. It was in the Roman Empire that Falk the Black met with the Duke of Normandy, Robert. Robert was actually Falk's great-nephew. Falk's elder sister was Robert's grandmother. The Duke of Normandy was returning from his own pilgrimage to Jerusalem. However, shortly after their meeting, Robert mysteriously died. Who knows what happened in those faraway eastern lands? But rumor has it, Robert died of poisoning. And some even dare to whisper that it was his great-uncle who had orchestrated the Duke's death. Robert lacked legitimate heirs. He left Normandy in the hands of his bastard son, William, who was only eight years old. As two of the most powerful states in France, Anjou and Normandy, had long enjoyed a bloody rivalry, the death of the Duke would open the door to Angevin dominion. After all, young William the Bastard would never amount to anything. And Robert, Duke of Normandy, was no saint himself. Why do you think he'd gone on pilgrimage in the first place? 
everyone knew Duke Robert had poisoned his own brother. Murdering a murderer with the same weapon he'd used? That was certainly justified, and regardless, Falk the Black was soon in the Holy Land, ready to pay penance for any sins he may have committed. Perhaps surprising some, the by now 66-year-old Count returned once more from the Holy Land, and he was once again in the thick of it. The following years would see him enter into conflict with his own son, Geoffrey. The father is said to have made the defeated son kneel before him, to be kicked, while his old man howled at him, You are conquered! You are conquered! But just a few years later, Falk is said to have begun to see his death around the corner. He repaired his damaged relationship with Geoffrey and settled the rest of his earthly affairs, before preparing to pay penance one last time. Falk Ganera, Falk the Black, Count de Vanjou, was a bad dude. Pride and wrath ruled him, but he was a product of his environment, the knightly aristocratic class of Latin Christendom, a world that prized brute force above all other virtues. Despite the fact that their holy book warned of their eternal damnation, in a violent age, people were spiritually torn between aspiring to both meet the demands of their messiah and doing what needed to be done to survive. Falk, like so many others, reconciled these two competing obligations by means of pilgrimage. And with one foot in the grave, Falk is said to have undertaken the most extreme of his pilgrimages. In 1040, the 70-year-old Count once again found himself at that city beloved of God, Jerusalem. Under the Levantine sun, Falk the Black stripped naked. One of his servants wrapped a rope around his neck and dragged his body along the ground, up to the sepulcher of Christ while another servant beat him on the bare back with a stick. With tears in his eyes, naked, covered in dirt and bruises, the decrepit bag of bones cried out to the heavens, Lord, receive wretched folk, your oath-breaker, your fugitive. O Lord Jesus Christ, look after my repentant soul. Hello, and welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.4, Pilgrimage and You, The Beginner's Guide to Penance. Before we get into it, I want to give a bit of a scheduling update with regard to what our next few episodes will be covering. So, these first few episodes have been less narrative-focused and more topic-oriented. Next time, we'll be tying these threads together and exploring exactly what Pope Urban II got up to in 1095. Then we'll be talking about the immediate response to Urban's exhortation and the Peasants' Crusade for an episode or two. Then we'll be taking a look at the leaders of the First Crusade proper, specifically the ones who will end up as Outremer rulers. Raymond of Toulouse, the brothers Godfrey of Bouillon and Baldwin of Boulogne, and our old friend Bohemond of Trento. After that, we'll talk about their arrival in the Roman Empire and their interactions with the Vasilefs, Alexios Komnenos then the siege of uh, Nicaea, Nicaea, Iznik. That's about as far as I have drafts written, so the rest of the season is more up in the air. 
In terms of events, after the siege of Nicaea, we have the long journey across Anatolia, the interesting nature of interactions with Armenians in the region of Cilicia, the adventures of Baldwin of Boulogne in Edessa, then the siege of Antioch, the journey south through Syria-Palestine, cannibal crusaders, and finally the siege of Jerusalem. We'll probably take a few detours along the way. To be honest, I think the First Crusade is pretty well known by now, so I'm hoping to tell the story in a different way as the origin story for our Uchmer kingdoms, obviously, but also looking at some aspects that might be less well-known. Anyway, today we'll be talking about medieval pilgrimage, the institution that formed the foundation of what would come to be known as the First Crusade. By the 11th century, participation in a pilgrimage was considered an act which could wash away your sins. It was this aspect that led Pope Urban's exhortation in 1095 to see such a groundswell of support, as we talked about in the season intro, it wasn't until about a century later that the term crusade began to mark out these expeditions as truly different. Until then, these events were referred to as pilgrimages, and those who would come to be known as crusaders were just pilgrims. And after the Uchmer states were founded, pilgrimage, and specifically protection of pilgrims, became key parts of both the economy and politics of the Latin East. Let's talk about our opening real quick. I have a few quick comments. First, the Abbey Belli Locus is totally misnamed, at least compared to the French translation, Bordieu, beautiful place. The correct way to say that in Latin is not Belli Locus, but Bellus Locus. It appears that somewhere along the line, someone made a grammatical or a transcriptional error. What's funny, given the fact that it was built by Falk the Black, is that Belli Locus translates not to beautiful place, but place of war. The second thing is that when you're working with the life of one person in particular or specific events, it's almost impossible to say with detail what actually happened. Did Folk the Black actually poison and kill Duke Robert of Normandy? I don't know. But what's important is that this was believable. This was what was possible. And in many cases, it's what was recorded. For the sake of narrative immersion, I didn't point out all the contradicting sources and what-ifs and whatnot, but whenever you hear a historical narrative talking about events in detail, you should be prefacing each phrase with an implicit, it is said that. The representation of Folk's life that we heard in the opening is a tool to immerse ourselves in the society he lived in, and Folk is a very good character for achieving this immersion. So, almost everything there was pulled from Falknera, the Neo-Roman Consul, 987-1040, a political biography of the Angevin Count, by Bernard S. Bachrock. As that title indicates, Bachrock uses Falk to explore the politics of post-Carolingian Francia. To quote the first few lines of his opening, When the political unity of Francia Occidentalis finally succumbed to the dual burdens of endemic civil war and foreign invasions during the late 9th century, the realm gradually fragmented into a congeries of smaller states. Many of these polities were based on the old Roman civitates, that is, the fundamental local political structures that first had coalesced into a Romano-German regnum ruled by the Merovingian dynasty, and later into the Carolingian state west of the Rhine. The new small states that developed at the dissolution of the Carolingian Empire exhibited a political dynamic in which a plethora of dynasties, many with family connections to the House of Charlemagne, vied to absorb their neighbors' lands and rights, 
in an ongoing effort to aggrandize their territorial holdings and assure the legitimacy of their positions for themselves and their descendants. In an ongoing struggle for land and power, the dynasty of Angevin counts gradually emerged as the leading power. Indeed, when Count Henry of Anjou conquered England in 1154, he created an empire stretching from the Pyrenees in the south to Scotland in the north. This empire included two kingdoms, the Regnum Aquitanorum and the Regnum Anglorum. The key figure in this Angevin success story, recognized both by his contemporaries during the Middle Ages and by modern scholars, was Falknera, Count of the Angevin. The purpose of this book is to explain how Falknera, after coming to power as a teenager, rose to be master in the West, and in the process, built the state upon which his descendants would create the Angevin Empire. End quote. Obviously, a lot of the book is not really relevant to us, though I do highly recommend it, and Falk is actually connected to a lot of characters we'll be seeing later on. For a mini-spoiler, his great-grandson, Falk V, will become king of Jerusalem after marrying Melisande, the queen of Jerusalem, and Falk's descendants also include the House of Plantagenet, who, as we just heard Bachrock mention, will come to rule England. One of those Plantagenet kings is Richard the Lionheart, whose name you should recognize if you're familiar with the Third Crusade. Anyway, that's some way off for us. More relevant for us now is how pilgrimage played a large role in Falk's political maneuverings. And I'll be drawing from the four examples Falk has given us throughout the rest of the episode. So first, we'll be taking a quick look at the origins of pilgrimage, and then a discussion of what pilgrimage looked like circa 1095, and how it connected to the concept of holy war we talked about last time. So, pilgrimage is not unique to Christianity, obviously. Many other religions practice pilgrimage as a form of devotion. Early Christian pilgrimage often had a practical benefit, as Christian scholars would visit Jerusalem to consult the library there, which preserved a wealth of biblical texts. But these early pilgrims were also eager to see the actual places written about in their holy book. To quote Paulinus of Nola, who wrote in the late 4th century, No other sentiment draws men to Jerusalem than the desire to see and touch the places where Christ was physically present, and to be able to say from our very own experience, we have gone into his tabernacle and adored in the very places where his feet have stood. These early pilgrims also loved to read biblical passages in the places where they had happened. And like anyone traveling abroad, they were also quite keen to get their hands on souvenirs. Soil from the Holy Land was a common one, but also many other relics. Still, these were more personal devotional experiences, very different from the need for public penance and absolution that motivated Falk's pilgrimages in the 11th century. We can see the roots of this type of pilgrimage in the reign of Emperor Constantine the Great, who not only repealed the persecution of his predecessor, Diocletian, but also favored Christianity. His reign also saw perhaps the most famous pilgrimage to Jerusalem, that of his mother. St. Helena. Notably, Constantine named his mother as Augusta, raising her to one of the most prominent roles in the imperial infrastructure. And Helena would come to play a key part in the Christianization of the Roman Empire. In the year 328, the Augusta made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The events of this journey were recorded by the historian Eusebius, who wrote a eulogy to the Emperor Constantine shortly after his death, titled Life of Constantine the Great. When discussing Helena's pilgrimage, he wrote, quote, For she, having purposed to pay a fitting return of a pious disposition to God, the ruler of all, thought it right to make thank offerings by means of prayers for her son, now so great an emperor, and for his sons, her own descendants, the Caesars beloved by God. 
So she came, though advanced in years, with the energy of youth, to acquaint herself with this land worthy of all veneration, and with exceeding wisdom, and to visit with imperial solicitude the provinces, townships, and people. And when she had bestowed fitting worship on the footprints of the Savior, in accordance with prophetic word which says, Let us worship at the place where his feet have stood, she immediately bequeathed to those who were to come after the fruit of her personal piety. And forthwith she dedicated two temples to the God whom she worshipped, one at the cave of the Nativity and the other on the Mount of the Ascension. For he who was God with us submitted for our sakes to be born underground, and the place of his birth in the flesh was called by the Hebrews Bethlehem. Wherefore the most pious Empress adorned the scene of the labor of the Mother of God with rare monuments, beautifying in every way this sacred cave. Shortly afterward, the Emperor also honored it with imperial offerings, with treasures of gold and silver, and with embroidered curtains, thus enhancing the artistic design of his mother. Again, the imperial mother erected a stately edifice on the Mount of Olives as a monument of the progress into heaven of the Savior of all, raising a sacred church and temple on the mountain ridge at the very summit of the hill. Here in this cave, true history has it that the Savior of all initiated his disciples into sacred mysteries. Here did the Empress honor the great king with offerings and beautiful gifts of all kinds. And so Helena Augusta, the God-beloved mother of a God-beloved prince, dedicated to God her Savior as tokens of her pious disposition, these two venerable and beautiful sacred edifices at the two divine caves, which are indeed worthy of everlasting remembrance, her son affording her the aid of his imperial authority. Not long after, the aged lady received her due reward, having passed the whole of her life up to the very threshold of old age and all good things, showing forth the goodly fruits of the message of salvation in word and in deed, and having consequently spent a life of healthy purpose, well-ordered and tranquil in body and soul alike, she at length received from God an end worthy of her piety, as well as recompense of good things in the present life. End quote. After the death of Constantine, a tradition arose that his mother, Helena, had not only visited holy places and built churches, but that she had found and retrieved a number of holy relics, among them the true cross, as in the cross Jesus himself had been crucified on. As recorded by the historian Socrates Scholasticus, writing in the 5th century, quote, Helena, the emperor's mother, being divinely directed by dreams, went to Jerusalem finding that which was once Jerusalem desolate as a preserve for autumnal fruits. According to the prophet, she sought carefully the sepulcher of Christ, from which he arose after his burial. After much difficulty, by God's help, she discovered it. What the cause of the difficulty was, I will explain in a few words. Those who embraced the Christian faith after the period of his passion greatly venerated this tomb. But those who hated Christianity, having covered the spot with a mound of earth, erected on it a temple to Venus and set up her image there, not caring for the memory of the place. This succeeded for a long time, and it became known to the emperor's mother. Accordingly, she having caused the statue to be thrown down, the earth to be removed, and the ground entirely cleared, found three crosses in the sepulcher. One of these was that blessed cross on which Christ had hung. The other two were those on which the two thieves that were crucified with him had died. With these were also found the tablet of Pilate, on which he had inscribed in various characters that the Christ who was crucified was king of the Jews. Since, however, it was doubtful which was the cross they were in search of, the emperor's mother was not a little distressed. But from this trouble, the bishop of Jerusalem, Macarius, shortly relieved her. 
and he solved the doubt by faith, for he saw a sign from God and obtained it. The sign was this, a certain woman of the neighborhood who had long been afflicted with disease was now just at the point of death. The bishop therefore arranged it so that each of the crosses should be brought to the dying woman, believing that she would be healed on touching the precious cross. Nor was he disappointed in his expectation, for the two crosses having been applied which were not the Lord's, the woman still continued in a dying state. But when the third, which was the true cross, touched her, she was immediately healed and recovered her former strength. On this manner, then was the genuine cross discovered. The emperor's mother erected over the place of the sepulchre a magnificent church, and named it New Jerusalem, having built it facing that old and deserted city. There she left a portion of the cross enclosed in a silver case, as a memorial to those who might wish to see it. The other part she sent to the emperor, who being persuaded that the city would be perfectly secure where that relic should be preserved, privately enclosed it in his own statue, which stands on a large column of porphyry in the forum named after Constantine at Constantinople. I have written this from report indeed, but almost all the inhabitants of Constantinople affirm that it is true. Moreover, the nails with which Christ's hands were fastened to the cross, for his mother having found these also in the sepulchre had sent them, Constantine took and had made into bridle bits and a helmet, which he used in his military expeditions. The emperor supplied all materials for the construction of the churches, and wrote to Macarius, the bishop, to expedite these edifices. When the emperor's mother had completed the new Jerusalem, she reared another church, not at all inferior, over the cave at Bethlehem, where Christ was born according to the flesh. Nor did she stop here, but built a third on the mount of his ascension. So devoutly was she affected in these matters, that she would pray in the company of women, inviting the virgins enrolled in the register of the churches to a meal, serving them herself, she brought the dishes to table. She was also very munificent to the churches and to the poor. Having lived a life of piety, she died when about 80 years old. Her remains were conveyed to New Rome, the capital, and deposited in the imperial sepulcher. End quote. Uh, New Rome is Constantinople, obviously. And notice the return of Jesus and the thieves. We will be seeing the true cross again in the future, though. For now, just keep in mind that it was during a pilgrimage that the true cross is supposed to have revealed itself. In these accounts of St. Helena's pilgrimage, we see three important aspects of Christian devotion. The desire to walk in the footsteps of Christ, that is, pilgrimage, the endowment and construction of churches and monasteries, and the collection of holy relics. Now, holy relics probably deserve their own episode, which I imagine we'll get to someday, but all of these actions were often connected. After all, Folk the Black not only took pilgrimages, but he built abbeys and made sure to fill them with holy relics he'd <clears throat> acquired in the Holy Land. As for walking in Christ's footsteps, this was often linked to Christ's suffering, to quote Jonathan Sumption in his book Pilgrimage. They often referred to their pilgrimage as an imitatio Christi, an imitation of Christ. By reenacting in their own lives the sufferings of Christ, they felt that they were performing an act of personal redemption, just as Christ, by his death, had made possible the salvation of all men. End quote. As an example, Richard of Verdun, the abbot of St. Van in northern France, took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Holy Week in 1027, and his biographer described the experience in the following way. It is not for me to describe the anguished tears which he shed when he at last reached those venerable places. 
when he saw the pillar of Pilate in the praetorium, he witnessed in his mind's eye the binding and scourging of the Savior. He thought of the spitting, the smiting, the mocking, and the crown of thorns. Then, on the place of cavalry, he passed through his mind an image of the Savior crucified, pierced with a lance, reviled and mocked by all around him, crying out with a loud voice and yielding up his spirit. And meditating on these scenes, he could no longer hold back his tears and surrender to the agony which he felt. End quote. Okay, why do all these writers start off saying, it's not for me to talk about such things, and then continue to talk about such things? What is this mind game you're trying to play with me? Anyway, as the centuries went on, this idea of pilgrimage and redemptive suffering began to merge with a very common legal tradition found across the world, that of exile. Banishing offenders is a pretty simple solution to crime, but when viewed through a Christian lens, the focus was not on removing the offender, but on making them suffer. Of course, this suffering was meant to redeem them in the eyes of God. In a way, mandatory pilgrimages functioned as a new paint job for traditional forms of banishment. Pilgrims who were forced to undertake this kind of pilgrimage were sometimes bound in irons to mark them out. An anonymous monk writing in the early 11th century described the circumstances surrounding the pilgrimage of an Englishwoman named Godelinda in the following way, quote, From the lands across the sea, there came a certain woman named Godelinda, whose parents were both English. She wore bonds of iron on her left arm, not because she was possessed by a demon, but rather on account of her spilling of paternal blood. How this came to pass, we plan to explain right away. She had a father of noble birth, and a mother who was not inferior in her own birth. Death carried off the father, who, not unmindful of his children, called upon their mother, with his dying words but of clear mind, he begged her to watch over the flock of their children with maternal affection. Soon after her husband died, it became clear that all of his words had fallen on deaf ears. Taking her children's home, surrendering their paternal right, she again joined herself to an ill-fated spouse. The new husband tried to destroy her children, expelling them from their rightful places, just like strangers. Except for the woman, whom we spoke of earlier, since her feminine sex protected the young lady from being cast out of her proper lodgings. Finally, one of them, a cleric, who could not withstand this injury any further, raised his hand against his stepfather in parricide. The aforementioned sister offered to join him, moved grievously to fraternal misery. Thereupon, a nightly assault was prepared, unknown to anyone except for her brother. Behold, when the stepson with his companions forcefully invaded the house where the stepfather was sleeping, the entrance was immediately flooded by them, and anyone in their way was cut down by those rushing in. Meanwhile, the stepfather awoke and rose from his deathbed. Both the daughter and the son proceeded to the doorway of the bedroom. He, the father, was struck by horror seeing them in his doorway. When the cleric saw his enemy approaching, plucking up his courage combined with his inner rage, with the weight of his entire body behind him, he thrust out his spear with an unspeakable force. The father quick on his feet, avoided the thrust, and tried to flee, but the woman standing behind him wrapped her arms around his chest. Soon, wounded by the sun, the father breathed out his last, pouring forth his blood. Bound on the inside by this crime, the aforementioned cleric was enchained on the outside by his bishop with penitential irons. The entire trunk of his body wrapped up tight with metal bonds. 
What's more, the sister, who had consented to this wicked evil, received two irons on her left arm, so that she might render satisfaction for her unheard-of evil deed by this lamentable penalty. Then, together, they set out for Jerusalem. En route, the brother surrendered his earthly life. Giving thought to her situation, weakened by her long squalor, she turned her direction toward our sanctuary. Why linger on this matter with too many words? End quote. Of course, the monk then goes on to linger on this matter with too many words. Again, what is the mind game here? Long story short, Godelinda then has a whole bunch of adventures and sees visions of saints and whatnot, and eventually she returns home. Anyway, we can see that by the 11th century, pilgrimage held a vital role in Latin Christian society. Medieval Christians saw the world around them and considered it to be full of sin. There was no way any of them were getting into heaven without a bit of help. Pilgrimage could give you that leg up. But how exactly did it work, you might ask? Well, let me tell you. So you've killed a few folks and need to cleanse your eternal soul of sin. What next? Okay, so you're going to suffer punishment, perhaps even eternal punishment, unless you take some steps to avoid it. When you sinned, you racked up culpa and pena. Culpa, or guilt, is pretty easy to deal with. You gotta confess your sins, basically. But pena, or punishment, well, that's gonna be a bit harder to get rid of. But otherwise, you'll be paying for your punishment in purgatory. Now, around the 11th century, the notion of purgatory was beginning to crystallize. In the following centuries, purgatory would be better established as a core belief of Catholicism. A sort of in-between that allowed for souls to undergo cleansing, a purge, hence purgatory. But you still want to get as much of that punishment paid off as you can while you're still alive. A forgiving of punishment due is known as an indulgence. In Latin, indulgentia. In the later Middle Ages, indulgences would become a more institutionalized concept, and famously, they would become purchasable, leading to a whole bunch of controversy. You know, Martin Luther and his theses... In the 11th century, these events and concepts weren't fully cooked yet. An indulgence was basically a type of forgiveness you received from paying penance. Often, the type of penance you were supposed to do was assigned to you by a member of the church. Penance took different forms, but pilgrimage was perhaps the most common. But because this was punishment, it was really suffering that was key. That's where the whole imitation of the suffering of Christ came in. Falk the Black is once again a great example. The description of his fourth pilgrimage, which might not have actually happened, I should mention, goes into gratuitous detail of how much suffering the old man subjected himself to. You can also think back to the German king's suffering outside Canossa Castle from episode 2.2. Mandated pilgrimages to forgive sins existed alongside pilgrimages as acts of devotion. And it's often hard to tell the exact conditions that led to each of Folk the Black's pilgrimages, for example. Whether he was told to undertake pilgrimage by a member of the clergy, or if he decided to do it for himself. In the end, it doesn't really matter, and the line is a bit blurred. What's important to keep in mind is that in the 11th century, pilgrimage was a public act. We can see this in Folk the Black's second pilgrimage, which he promoted the shit out of. Even minting commemorative coins the medieval equivalent of the McDonald's tying campaign. In general, this was a very public era. For the nobility of Latin Christendom, a lot depended on what people thought of you. 
Look at how much juicy gossip we know about Falk the Black and Gotalinda. This is the kind of thing people were recording and paying attention to. Pilgrimage was no different. Your relationship with God Almighty, which we might think of as a very private matter, was, in that time and place, relevant to everyone in your social circle. Accordingly, pilgrims were marked out as special. Their departure was highly ritualized, and the pilgrim had to receive the blessing of his local parish to embark on the journey. To quote a primary source, he is understood to be a pilgrim who, publicly, with the knowledge of the priest and his fellow parishioners, departs from his place, and according to the custom of the country, leaves an attorney. By attorney, they mean someone appointed to advocate for them. Think of the phrase, power of attorney. Because it wasn't just social mores that protected pilgrims and their dependents. Their status was also codified in legal practice. In Normandy, landowning pilgrims were expected to make a will that would be executed if they didn't announce their return within a year and a day. This is notable because wills, or the right to dictate what happened to your possessions after you died, was something that was not available to everyone. While they were away, pilgrims were also exempt from civil claims and a court of law, and the duty owed to a feudal lord was generally suspended. There's also some evidence that pilgrims in northern France, at least, were also excused from participating in family vendettas. In short, for the duration of the pilgrimage, pilgrims were basically removed from secular life. There was, in fact, no legal action you could take against a pilgrim while they were away. Illegal action was another matter, but this was, of course, frowned upon. That's why Falk the Black could embark on his second pilgrimage, relatively confident that his enemies wouldn't seize all his land while he was away. There were also some special powers granted to the family a pilgrim left behind. In Norman custom, which was highly restrictive of women, a woman whose husband was on pilgrimage could even be heard in court if she had a formal inquisition to file. This was otherwise completely unheard of. I want to mention that many of the legal documents we have concerning pilgrimage date from the later Middle Ages, which are much, 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 much better documented. I really can't stress that much enough. Even if they come from a more organized and institutionalized Western Europe, though, these legal practices evolved out of ones we know existed in some form earlier on, perhaps only informally in some cases, though. While on their pilgrimage, pilgrims were also marked out by how they dressed. They carried a staff, towed with metal usually, and a scrip, a leather pouch that carried their belongings. This was actually not too distinct from other travelers, but by the end of the 11th century, some aspects were added to make it stand out even more. A sclaven or a tunic made of coarse fabric, for example. By the mid-12th century, the uniform of the pilgrim was reserved for them alone. This is probably because by the 12th century, the church had begun to bless pilgrims' clothes, and also to celebrate a special ceremony, which was very similar to that of knights being dubbed and priests being ordained. This special pilgrim's uniform showed that the pilgrim was no longer subject to secular law and was under the protection of the church. They were almost a temporary monk. This ritual went hand in hand with the growing involvement of the church in pilgrimage. Many pilgrims made huge land and property donations to monasteries before their journey. This was tied to the idea that pilgrimages should be undertaken in poverty. However, many pilgrims worked out a bit of a loophole that allowed them to have their cake and eat it too. They often made the gift conditional on their death, so when they came back, they would just roll up to the monastery and demand their shit back. 
Sometimes the quote-unquote donation might actually have been more like collateral, as the pilgrims borrowed the cost of the journey from the monastery. Leaving things with monasteries was also a good way to make absolutely sure nobody messed with it while you were away. This growing involvement of the church was no coincidence. As we've discussed at length in our last episodes, the 10th and 11th centuries saw the church fully come into its own as an institution that stood apart from the state and secular life. Pilgrimage was another area where the church could flex its muscles. Again, this is a practice that would be more formally laid out later on. So for instance, in 1145, Pope Eugenius III issued the papal bull Quantum Praedecessores, which stated that the family and possessions of a pilgrim were, quote, placed under the protection of the Holy See and all of the prelates of the Church of God. By our apostolic authority, we absolutely forbid anyone to disturb them until their return or death, end quote. Much like we discussed last episode, we can see the Reformed Church of the 11th century attempting to find any way possible to exercise control over the secular world. The 11th century also saw a massive increase in pilgrimage in general. Not only individual pilgrimages, but mass pilgrimages, which had a tendency to turn violent, such as the one undertaken by a band of Germans from 1064 to 1065. As described by the Chronicle of Marianus Scotus, quote, Many rich and poor, more than 7,000 of them, set out for Jerusalem with the Bishop of Mainz, the Bishop of Utrecht, the Bishop of Bamberg, and the Bishop of Regensburg. In the places where the bishops have their sees, they possessed ritual vestments and had gold and silver vessels and plates. From these, they managed to supply themselves gloriously with food and drink. The Arabs, gathering together when they heard tales of these riches, killed many of the aforementioned men on Good Friday. Overwhelmed, our people fled into an empty fortified town, which was called Garbasalim. Shutting themselves up in there, they defended themselves with stones and clubs against the assault of the Arabs, who were seeking all of their riches, or rather, their money and their lives. Then one noble soldier, who in no way intended to be denied the sepulchre of the Lord, came forth naked. The Arabs immediately stretched him out flat in the shape of a cross, pinning his hands and feet to the ground with nails, and they cut open the surface of his stomach on two sides, revealing his innards from his stomach up to his gullet, tossing them all over his face, thereby showing just how human guts look. After that, they chopped him up into bits. Their leader threw a stone on him first, and everyone else did likewise. Then they said to all of our people, watching inside the fort, this is what will happen to you if you don't hand over all of your money. Then, when our people promised to surrender their money, keeping only what they needed to survive to reach Christian lands, they sent in the leader of the Arabs with 16 men, armed with swords. When he saw the glorious bishops with their soldiers and the ritual vestments they were wearing and everything else about them, he threw a rope around the bishop of Bamberg's neck, as the pagans are accustomed to do with a convict as if he were our Lord by virtue of his greatness and the comeliness of his body, saying, You and everything of yours belong to me. The bishop said through an interpreter, What are you doing to me? He responded, I will suck the precious blood out of your guts and string you up like a dog in front of this fort. Then the bishop, grabbing him by the head, knocked him to the ground with a single blow. The other men with him were bound. When those who were outside heard all this commotion, they rushed forth against the fort. Those who were bound, however, placed atop the walls with swords up against their necks, beseeched their sons and friends, who got the others to stop the attack. 
Then a fight broke out among the thieves, many of whom desired money and many of whom desired the lives of their fathers and friends. Two weeks after Easter, summoned there by some of those who had escaped, the ruler of Ramla arrived on the scene with a strong force, putting the Arabs to flight. He took a payment of 50 gold byzants, that is, a kind of large coin, took captive the leader of the Arabs, who had been a foe of the Saracen king for some time, and led the Christians to Jerusalem, and finally to their boat. God granted them a favorable wind that carried them back to Christian lands. Out of the 7,000 who set out, not even 2,000 returned. End quote. Here we have a very strange proto-crusade. It has the mass participation and the conflict, but notably the pilgrims are not up to the task of confronting the Muslims who block their way. 1065, I will remind you, was a very chaotic time for the Fatimid Caliphate, which controlled Jerusalem. They were suffering from increased droughts and political instability. Jerusalem would be lost to the Turkmen warlord Atsiz just five years later. See episode 1.8. It's also probably no coincidence that this period between 1060 and 1070 is almost certainly when the Hospital of St. John was founded, in Jerusalem, by a group of Amalfi merchants who wanted to tend to the growing number of pilgrims. This hospital would eventually become the basis for the Order of Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, more commonly known as the Knights Hospitaller, but that's a story for another day. The increase in pilgrimage, as well as the general instability in the Levant during the 11th century, meant that tales like those of the Germans were commonplace by 1095, and they were welcome examples that Pope Urban II could use to justify holy war against the infidels who were blocking the pilgrimage paths. Last episode, we discussed how holy war was viewed as a parallel to monastic life, a way to fit knights into the religious schema of the day. It makes sense that holy war would be grafted onto pilgrimage because it was a primary point of contact with the infidel enemy. The church was also a fundamental part of it. And pilgrimage already attracted some of the most violent folks of the age, such as Falk the Black again. To quote Diana Webb in her book, Pilgrims and Pilgrimage in the Medieval West, Pilgrimage was a devotional exercise, which the fighting man could carry out without entirely changing his way of life. There was an ideological tension between the monastic ideal, viewed as the one secure path to salvation, and society's observed need for men who wielded the sword. End quote. Pilgrimage was a way to resolve this tension, providing penance to the knightly class. But now imagine if pilgrimage could be combined with warfare, a way of utilizing the talents of these warriors, while at the same time providing them with the penance they needed to justify their violent behavior. Urban knew this. He was from the same world that had created men like Falk the Black. If he could present his expedition along the lines of pilgrimage, then he could guarantee the participation of exactly the type of nobles that the church had long sought to control. As we talked about last time, Urban wasn't really an innovator, but he, by design or by chance, was able to repurpose existing ideas to fit his aims. His predecessor, Pope Gregory, had already done the hard work justifying how papal war could work. Now, Urban could use that theological underpinning to transform the nature of pilgrimage, sparking the birth of what we now recognize as a crusade, but which 11th century Europe still considered a pilgrimage. Next time on History of the Utremer, it's time to examine what exactly Urban was getting up to in 1095. 
His speech at Claremont is the famous one, but Urban did a lot more than just give one speech. All of France and beyond is about to hear all about Urban's exhortation.